The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Last Sunday, as you guys, uh, either you were here or not, um, you may have listened to the sermon, whatever. Um, we were in Psalm 58, and we saw some weird stuff in Psalm 58. Um, again, we're going to continue to do our Q&A after the sermon, so if you guys do have questions about either last week's sermon or, or the passage more particularly, and then this week, um, the, that's the number to Q&A. It'll be on each slide. Um, that goes right to my phone, and we can do that after the, ser- after the sermon. Because um, this Sunday, um, we yet again have a very uh, interesting psalm, and just so you guys are aware, the way we pick our psalms is uh, we did Psalm 40 to 52 last to 52 last summer or whatever, two summers ago, and we picked up a psalm, the next psalms in a row, and we just go through those. So there's no like science. So we just kind of end up in weird places. So that being said, we are in Psalm 59. Let me read this for us. We'll pray. And with God's help, we'll look at this together. Psalm 59, a victim of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. No no fault of mine. They run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see you, Lord of hosts, our God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They, there they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph over my enemies. Kill them not, lest people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths and the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, for they will make known to God, make known, uh, for they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, um, we have before us one of those psalms that is very challenging to understand, and yet you've given it to us to help us grieve over sin and evil and to find help and hope in your grace. And so, Father, I pray that in the tension of these realities, that we would experience your strength and your presence among us. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, again, 
This is, uh, we want to acknowledge up front, this is not everybody's favorite psalm, right? They don't think, you know, Psalm 59, definitely one of those psalms I want to have read at my wedding, definitely at my funeral for all those family members I don't like. Nothing like that. Um, this is a difficult psalm. And particularly, this psalm is challenging because it's one of the ones that gets used when people think about, like, how angry and mean the God of the Old Testament is. They'll point to this psalm and they'll say, how can your God give you both this psalm Right? Verse 13. <laughs> I want them to be consumed in your wrath so that they are no more. That's a pretty stark statement. And then you have, on the other hand, you have Jesus laying out this whole Sermon on the Mount, which is about loving your enemies as yourself. I just, I just want to create some tension here so that we understand what people feel when they look at the psalm and they say, what gives? So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount if you'll recall, Psalm, Sermon on the uh, in the very beginning of it, in chapter 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Certainly sounds like what this psalm's talking about, right? Certainly sounds like Psalm 59 is, hate your enemy. But here Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you are great, only, if you are, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do this. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then Jesus goes on to teach in the sermon, in the how to pray. He says, they pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he comments, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then famously in chapter 7, he says, Judge not, lest you too be judged. So when people will object to this psalm, it's understandable. He understand why Psalm 58 is a little bit of a difficult spot. <laughs> God, would you rain down fire on all these bad people? And then Jesus comes on the scene and he's saying, God, would you be merciful to these bad people? How do you have both of these gods in the whole, in the Bible? Some people will look at the Old Testament and say, well, that was a different God. God evolved over time um, so that God's love ethic changed. Or some people will say, well, that was just David expressing human emotions and he wasn't really inspired, but it kind of got thrown into the vault, into the Bible. So we really aren't supposed to do that, but it's, you know, we're kind of like forgiving towards people who were stupid and dumb all those years ago for being put in the Bible, you know, like that sort of stuff. These are bad readings of the Bible. Like this stuff has been on for a long time. For the very, very beginning of, the, of the, the church, people have been looking at the Bible and saying, how do we deal with these bad parts and then just chucking it out? So what I want us to do this morning is to acknowledge that these things are hard. This is a difficult psalm, and we're going to try to step right in the middle of that tension. You have... Psalm 59, you might say, Psalm 59 over here, very challenging passage. And then you got the Sermon on the Mount over here with Jesus saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we want to step into that tension and say, okay, how do, we, how do we say this is the Lord of all, God himself, who's given us both of these things to live in it? Because honestly, we all live in t tension of these things in our own lives, don't we? We, we all have on the one hand, we wake up, if we're, if we've had you know, eight hours of sleep and we've had all of our 
you know, regimen of vitamins and everything like that. Wake up one morning, we're kind of like, God, would you just bless everybody? I don't care if they're Republicans or Democrats. I don't care who's president. Just bless everybody. And then you wake up the next morning, you're four hours of sleep. Maybe somebody was, you know, you got a blast of some crazy text or some TikTok thing or whatever that wakes you up and you're like angry and you're kind of like, God, would you just destroy those people because I hate them? <laughs> How stupid can you be? That sort of stuff. We all live in those tensions. So we need to learn how to live in those tensions. Living in some of these difficult tensions in the Bible helps us with our own, the realities of our own lives. So here's what I want to do. I want to lay out our main point for what we're going to see in the psalm and then we're going to kind of step through it and um, work through this passage. So the main point, find strength and our steadfast God by grieving evil and celebrating grace. That's what I think this psalm leads us to. Find grace, find strength in your steadfast God by grieving evil and celebrating grace. So how do we pray against God's enemies when we're commanded to love them? Is kind of like an operative question to help us get into this passage. How do we pray for our enemies when we're commanded to love them so that we find strength in our steadfast God? All right, so... First thing we're going to do, um, we're going to look at this idea of rooting ourselves in God's king and kingdom. For Psalm 59, it's a difficult passage, so we need to kind of step back and, like we did last week, where does this psalm fit in the whole Bible? What is, what's going on here with this whole Bible thing? So I want to step back and say we want to root ourselves, before we get into understanding what Psalm 59 is all about, we'll look at the big picture of rooting ourselves in God's king and kingdom. And just as a forewarning, I, I recognize uh, some of you are excited about Bible nerd stuff. Some of you are not. <laughs> We're going to kind of work through some, some moving pieces here to help us understand how we get to Psalm 59 and what it means for how we pray it. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And it's gonna, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to read it for you so you understand where we're starting out. Psalm, or Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And then pay attention to this verse. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Abram, who gets renamed Abraham, was a part of a tribe of people who were moon-worshipping pagans um, in Canaan, and God plucks him out of that land and says, I'm going to make you the father of all these nations that blesses people who don't deserve my blessing, who give, who is the family of grace to all these nations. But here's the, here's the thing. The fence around you guys... Are we okay? Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry. John was giving me weird signs back there. Um, here's the thing. I want to bless those who bless you, but those who come against you, who are going to curse Abram, who becomes Abraham, um, they're going to be cursed. The dividing line between the family of grace and the family that gets cursed is, are you going to be receiving grace or are you going to be trying to achieve grace? Are you going to be trying to get God's grace? Or are you going to kind of achieve what you can on your own terms to get God on your own terms? Or are you going to receive who God is through Abraham and his whole family thing and receive the blessing of God's family? That's, that's the, the most fundamental dividing line here is it's receiving grace or trying to get God on your own terms. So God's kingdom starts out in the whole Bible as this thing that we just get receive, we receive and we get invited into. It's not like you get like a ticket and then you like earn your way. You know, you, you 
you earn your way through the lottery and you're like, hey, I passed the test. And now God, he's recognized I passed the test and I get to be a part of his family. No, you just receive his grace just like Abraham was and you get a part of his family. So that's one point here. We're going to drop back down into Psalm 59 for a second. When David then starts to talk about blessing and cursing, he is taking this whole idea as the king and saying, we have all of these nations. Remember how we just looked at Genesis 12 and saw all these nations that were going to be against Abraham. We've got all these nations who are trying to take over and crush God's grace in our people. They are trying to take over and crush us. And so David, as the king, then says, God, it's time for war. Remember those cursing promises that you, you made? Now's the time we have to defend what grace is in our people, in our nation, and what you're doing, and we have to defend grace and go to war to make these curses real. So Psalm 57, 58, and 59, where we've just been, if you look back over them, they've all been kind of angry psalms. <laughs> you notice David's in a pickle. He's been a bit of like he's been in a bit of a corner, and every one of them, there's always been a way in which he's been under oppression or he's been opposed by the other people around him. And as the and it's been because he is the king of this grace nation. It's been because of his role in God's plan. And so when we look at them, you might call these like Psalms of royal wrath, right? These are God coming after David as the king, asking for God to defend them, his people, because he is the king. So let me just point out a couple of things here, and we're gonna we're gonna keep kind of coming in and out of Psalm 58, 59, I'm sorry. You'll notice here, uh, verse 4 to 5, here in Psalm 59. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Now, from Psalm 58 from last week where we talked about the divine council, that's, the again, an echo of the divine council stuff. Lord of hosts, rouse yourself and punish all the nations. That seems a little weird. David's got people who are, like, outside his fence trying to, like, scope in on what's going on, and he says, would you just destroy the nations? <laughs> so you understand how weird this is? Like he's saying, I've got guys who are trying to spy on me here outside my house. Now would you go destroy the nations? Right. So there's a tension here that this is not just kind of like something where it's just somebody spying on David's family in his house. There's clearly something as his role as the king who represents a nation going on when he's dealing with this situation. It's one nation against the king's nation. There's a, there's a royal dynamic to this. So then we'll jump down here, um, if you see verse 7 to 8. There they are, right? These are the people who are howling around, there's, they're, that are harassing him, bellowing with their mouths, with their swords and their lips, for who they think will hear us. And then here we go down into verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Again, it goes from this personal inter interaction for David into this national uh, platform. Or here again, and we'll, we'll stop with this one, verse 10. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph over my enemies. And then verse 11, kill them lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. You see, there's a, there's, a, I, there's a binding between the king and his nation that David's playing out here. And he's saying, you've got to be my strength because it's not just me. I'm not just like a, a regular member of the nation. I'm the king. And when people come against me, they, they are coming against your whole people. So God, not only be my strength, that's why he ends with be 
our shield. So there's a binding between God's king, grace kingdom and his king that's going on here. So when David's praying Psalm 59, he's not just doing it kind of like, I'm angry at these guys, dear diary, I wish God would kill them. He's doing this at his role as the king. You see, I don't know if you guys, uh, The West Wing is like one of my favorite shows ever. Anybody a West Wing fan here? I realize you younger people have no idea what I'm talking about. It's an old show from the late, tw- late 90s. I'm getting blank stares. A couple of people know what I'm talking about. There's a scene in the first season where, where President Barlett, as the, as the king, president of the United States, his personal physician is out um, in Iraq on a plane, and the plane gets blasted down, and he personally feels it because that's his personal physician that's just been killed in Iraq or wherever it was, and he wants to, he was like, I want to bring the entire armada of the American justice down on these people who just killed my friend. And the whole tension of the episode is related to, look, President Bartlett, I get it that you're angry that your friend just got killed in the war over there, but you are the president of the country. You can't just take out personal vendettas against foreign powers because your friend got killed on their territory. The whole episode's about proportional response. He has to kind of adjust how he does things. But you recognize that in that tension is kind of what we're dealing with here, right? David is not just angry with people who are harassing and, and harassing him. He, as the king of Israel, is dealing with people who are coming against God's grace kingdom and trying to undermine what God is doing through his people. One more Bible nerd thing. You guys cool? You guys, you guys, so... Another thing that we need to pull out here, we'll step back. We were just looking at these three psalms. They're all these, these you might call them royal wrath psalms. What I want to talk about for a second here is just to kind of put this psalm in its place within the entire, it's called the Psalter of the Book of Psalms. There is this perception that these, uh, I have a Bible, I'm sorry, this is so big because I've got this, the Psalms journal where it's like the Psalms on one side and the blank page on the other. But the Psalms, um, are viewed as being, there's 150 of them, and somebody just kind of did a little bit of some cha-cha and just threw the numbers into a bowl, pulled, pulled the numbers out, and then that's how we get <laughs> the Psalms. They're just kind of like randomly put in there. There's no order to them. Psalm 1 doesn't really matter. Psalm 57 doesn't matter. Psalm 113, it doesn't really matter where they are in the whole book. They're just kind of there. Has anybody ever felt that way about the Psalms? They're just kind of like, what's going on here? <laughs> the Psalms actually have a shape, and they tell a story. Now, it's not exactly easy to see sometimes, but they tell a story. And what I want to do is just kind of tell you, give you the, the big picture of what's going on to kind of show what I'm talking about and saying the Psalms have a whole story that they're trying to tell. And so where a Psalm is helps us understand what exactly is going on in that moment of the story. So for example, you have the very beginning of the Psalms. You have verse, uh, Psalms 1 and 2 that start out with saying, follow the way of the Lord and follow his king. That, that's what Psalms 1 and 2 start out with. And then the first book of the Psalms is predominantly all psalms written by who? The king, David. Most of the psalms written by David are in book one of the psalms. And then progressively over the course of the psalms, the king, David's psalms diminish so that there's hardly any psalms above David by the end of the Psalter. More importantly, there are psalms that have clear structure to them. So Psalm 15 to 24, there, um, Psalms 15 starts with, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24 begins, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has a clean hand and a pure heart. And what's in the middle of those Psalms? Psalm 19 that celebrates the word of the Lord that ascends and that comes from God's presence. 
you have in each of the books a beginning and an end, and at the beginning and the end of each one is a benediction. The, the, the psalm will begin with a benediction, and it will end with a benediction, and they tie together. So, for example, um, can we go to the, uh, one of the slides coming up here? Um, it's about the, the, the five books. So, for example, Psalm, 50, psalm 106, verse 47 48. 106 over here. I've got my Bible open. Psalm 106 is the end of the book of the fourth book of the Psalms, and it says, Save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And then the next psalm right over, how does it start? O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So the, the end of the, of the fourth book of the Psalms ends, we're scattered among the nations, and then the beginning of the fifth book says, God, you've gathered us in. So let me give you this big picture idea of what this, the, the story of this book of Psalms and helps us understand what's going on in the Psalm 59. Do we have that slide of the books? Um, do we have that, psalm, that slide in there? It, it should be in it, book one, two, three, four, five. What's the shape of the Psalms? Um, so... Book one is God establishes his kingdom. Here we go. So the king arises, book one. This is the whole book of the first book of the Psalms. The king arises, right? This is the kiss the sun psalm where he says, kiss the psalm, the sun, lest he, um, he judge you. Book two, oh, here we go. The king, king against the nations. So we have Psalm 59, the nations against us here. And the king dies, Psalm 72. This is the Psalm, at the end of Psalm 72, the end of book two, is where it says the prayers of the, of, uh, the son of Jesse, David, have ended. Now, there's still Psalms that happen in the book of the, uh, David's Psalms, but it's telling a story. Book three, the nations overtake and scatter God's people. So Psalm 89 ends with basically saying, God, we're scattered among the nations. Book four, the nations scattered among the nations uh, the, sorry, the Israel, I'm sorry, Israel is scattered among the nations with a hope for a new king. So that's what we just looked at in Psalm 106. God, would you bring us back together? And then um, Psalm, the book five, they bring us together under the true joyful king. So this is where the Psalm of Ascents are in the book of the Psalms. I know it's getting a little, little thick here. Here's the deal. When God's people were in Babylon, at the, when they were in exile, they were trying to figure out, God, what's the deal? How do we get back in your presence? And they gather together all these prayers and they put them in a story to sing their hearts back into God's presence with him and said, God, you've done it once. You've had a king. We were scattered among the nations. God, will you do it again to bring us back into your presence? There's a story going on here in the psalm so that when we get to Psalm 59 and we see this angry psalm, there's more to the story than just David's anger. You guys track with me? I realize I got a little dense there. You guys cool? All right. We're going to drop back in here in Psalm 59. So we have here in Psalm 59... We have to remember to root ourselves in God's king and his kingdom. What is God doing? He's telling a story of God having one king over his people who have been oppressed by the nations, oppressed and, and scattered among the people that he then goes out to bring back into his presence to be his people with him. And a part of that story is the, the deep, painful reality that evil things happen by evil people to God's people and it's not fair. So Psalm 59 
is not merely just giving vent for all of our anger. It's not fair and it's not right, and God's king knows it. The one that God loves and has set over his people is going to do something about it. That's what Psalm 59 does for us. All right, so we're going to pick up here, jump right back into Psalm 59. Part of not only how do we live in this tension is kind of recognize the whole story of the Bible, what's going on here. We're going to stick now with Psalm 59 a little bit more. We need to entrust our vengeance to the Lord, right? Here we have, I'm just going to read these verses for us again so that we can kind of have them in our heads as we think through this. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine. I'm innocent. Awake and meet me and see. Right down here in verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. God is not not surprised by any of this, right? He's not taking it back. He he kind of laughs at the they're planning against his people. And then eleven, let them not, lest my people for, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by the power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield, the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them with wrath. Consume them till they come there no more, that they may be known, that they may know that the God, that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. See, these prayers are prayed in the context of David having guys who are stationed outside his house who are trying to oppress him from becoming the new king. That's what happens in First Samuel eight. Um, I'm sorry, 19, 1 Samuel 8, uh, chapter 19. And what's going on here is that David recognizes, God, this is not right. You are trying to do something for your name, to establish your name on the earth. And it's not right that they're, they're spying on me. Like they got their iPhones out and they're like taking like, they're like, they're, they're pictures of David, you know, taking his trash out. And like, you guys ever like, it's crazy what people do to like rock stars to like spy on them. Like, have you guys ever heard all these crazy stories of like, People going like Bob Dylan. People were like going through his trash. <laughs> so, so Bob Dylan started putting um, his little gifts for people in his trash for them to find. But they were spying on him. You know, um, that's kind of what's going on here, right? Saul was jealous of David because of his success of being king, and David is just doing his job. And God, this isn't fair. But it's more than just not fair. If there's anything that's gone on in the last year. I think the iPhone's been one of those things that's raised our, I don't mean iPhone, I've got an iPhone. Whatever your mobile phone is, whatever it is, it's raised our awareness that there's not just bad things that happen, but there's wrong things that happen. All, you think of all the videos that we've seen in the last year or so of, of you know, violence that's being perpetrated against other people, crazy things that people are saying left and right, and they're being caught on video, and we can all kind of like have these like major reactions of like, oh my gosh, can you believe that they said that, or can you believe that this happened, or look at this horrific thing. Now, I don't really care particularly about how you think about those things, but what it does is it raises our awareness that what the psalm is talking about, this desire for vengeance, is universal. We may think that here in the 21st century America, that it's not that big a deal that we've evolved past having to like, you know, care about like bringing vengeance upon other people. No, we still see over and over on a weekly basis. These are wrong things that happened and something must be done. It's not right that whatever it is that we saw in the video, police brutality, people stealing stuff, people saying crazy things, whatever those things are, it's not merely like bad. 
It's wrong. Something needs to be done about that. That sense of like, what's fixed this and all the, all the crazy things that people do, they all stem from the sense of what Psalm 59 is capturing, right? And what Psalm 59 does is it says, God does not sweep the injustices of the world under the cosmic rug. He is not an old grandpa who just wants to pat his little shoulder on the head and say, aren't you darlings just so great? Why don't you go work it out in the backyard? You know, you can recognize for people who are been ex- who have experienced abuse or been the victims of, of significant wrong. They look at these wrongs and they say, this isn't just, this isn't just bad that it happened. God, something must be done. There must be a reckoning that must happen. That, that's what our culture is still wrestling with this reality today. And actually, one of the great blessings that Christianity offers the world is that there is the ability for change, right? Other religions, they, they just kind of view that as kind of like, well, it's just the way the world works. You just got to figure out how to not die amidst it. But Christianity certainly has been used for evil um, in perpetrating those things. But Christianity then comes in and says, you know, God, God sees these things and he's going to do something about it, right? This is not just wrong that is just kind of swept under the rug. It is, it is something evil that will be taken care of. And you'll notice here, who is being, who, who is this psalm asking to enact a vengeance? Anybody? God himself. David, who is the king, certainly kind of, he certainly has the armada of God's army at his disposal. He says, God, you've got to take care of this. This isn't personal vengeance. This isn't a personal vendetta. This isn't, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen V for Vendetta. Like, this isn't like taking out a personal grudge or anything like that. Um, this is, this is God. You've got to take care of this because, you know, frankly, we read about David's story, story earlier. Not the, uh, not the most upstanding of guys. Uh, not, not a guy I'd want to be my pastor. <laughs> Abuses power and women and all that stuff. He, um, we need God to take care of this. If we're honest about the evil we experience, and truly alive to God, we will speak with the one hand, God, this needs to be taken care of, and you need to do vengeance upon this evil that's happened. And with Jesus, pray for those who have done evil against us. See, we can be angry with Jesus and say, what happened was wrong. What happened was evil. What happened needs to be punished. And then on the other hand, say, God, if I'm the hand who does that, I will be just as tainted. God, you, you've got to handle this. God, you must do something. God must do something to bring justice to this. That's what this ten, this is this, this tension, this biblical tension that we all feel the need to want to have to take care of it. But God does. And he promises it. And then as we look through the rest of the Bible, we see how he handles it. So I want to, I want to drop us in. We're going to kind of drop, uh, eject out of 59, and we'll come back in a second. So we've talked about entrusting vengeance to our just God. I want to jump in over here to Ephesians 2. We need to receive God's grace upon his enemies. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And you were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, we, we are, we are all born in this condition of being considered a part of those nations that are opposed to God. And when we say the nations, we don't mean like some sort of like ethnic designation or anything like that. We just mean a general, you're in God's family or not. That's what we're talking about. And we are all born across the city line of God's family, so to speak. We are born in the enemy nation, enemy territory. And God had every right to never bring us into his family and to leave us there to our own devices. But this is the reality of what God has done. This is the storyline, both of the Psalms and of what God's doing in the whole Bible. He makes his enemies his family, right? We have been selfish, just like the enemies in the psalm. We have misused our words and used our words to wound other people, right? I can just remember from this last week how I've used my words as little spears against the members of my family. I'm sure that you guys can as well. We've twisted God's design to serve our own purposes, and yet it is God's Son who stands in our place to take God's vengeance upon our sins. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say when he talks about these psalms of vengeance. So the psalm of vengeance leads to the cross of Jesus and to the love of God that forgives enemies. I cannot forgive the enemies of God by myself. Only the crucified Christ can. I can forgive them through him. So the carrying out of vengeance becomes grace for all in Jesus Christ. And his point is that when it comes time for us to think about those wrongs that have been done, whatever they are, Whatever your justice cause is for the day, I'm not going to comment on that. Whatever, the, whatever your justice cause is ultimately, it ultimately must drive you to reckon that you have vengeance that God requires against you. And so before we start talking about enacting vengeance upon other people for their sins, which may be true, we must recognize that we all stand on level footing before the cross of Christ, and they cannot receive grace without Jesus Christ, just the same way we cannot receive grace without Jesus Christ. And there he is, behold him on the cross, standing before us, before our vengeance before, from God, so that we receive grace and mercy rather than the blast of his anger. We receive, through the broken life of Jesus, the very grace and mercy that we need and those who have done great injustices in this world also need, right? This is not to diminish, I hope you hear me, if you've been the victim of some atrocity, this is not to diminish the injustice that has been committed against you. But it is to recognize that between you and whatever they deserve must stand either a king or they will stand before a king. Because here's the reality. We all will stand before the vengeance of God. We will all give an account for what we have done and how we've lived our lives. And what the gospel offers us is the king to stand before God's vengeance for us. Or you can stand without the king and he will bring his vengeance upon you. That is the, that is the reality of what these psalms remind us. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is bringing us to. We recognize Jesus must be at the very center of how we think about justice. 
about the great evils of the world. Or we will become proud and arrogant and we will just become a part of the problem as well. So we pray even for those who are entrapped by their sin that hurt us, that just like Jesus as he prays for people on the cross, that they too would receive grace like us and grieve evil and celebrate grace. Let's end with this. Can we go back to the psalm? After we have considered all that what God has done in justice and that vengeance must be done against evil and that the vengeance against us has been done against the cross of Christ upon, upon, he, upon Jesus and he offers the same grace for those who have done great evil, let's then go back to Psalm 59 and read these last two verses. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So we are called here in these verses to find your strength in God's steadfast love. Because here's the thing, what we've offered, what we've said here, God's justice must be met out. He will bring vengeance. God is, I like immediate gratification. I would like prime justice. Justice, prime membership, please. Prime membership to justice whenever I want it, however I want it, two days later, please now. It is often... Uh, by the Pony Express, so to speak. Way delayed, <laughs> long since after when I wanted it. But it will come. And between that tension, we stand here saying, Jesus, I've received your grace today. Jesus, I've been redeemed and made a part of God's family amidst being one of the very enemies that you should have brought your vengeance against. And so you, you have shown that you will bring your mercy and you have shown that your justice will happen on your own time. And so now I, I, I need help. I need help to stand in this tension. So that's where we then bring into play Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Pray and trust. Find strength in God himself. Right In the face of the evils that are too big for us to fix right now, from our own or, or massive cultural issues, we need to regularly declare he is the strong one. He is the one who can sustain us, right? And this is, this is one of the greatest things about being a pastor is I get to see how God is doing this in each of your lives, and some of you aren't aware of how God's doing it in each other's lives, how I watch on a daily, regular basis, God, you are meeting people in desperate need of your help and grace and mercy who are experiencing some injustices or incredible injustices, and yet you are sustaining them to stand beside us in worship and to raise their hands and to worship you and praise you. We stand amidst a theater of grace every Sunday morning, and we say with each other, God, you have been good to us. You have been our strength. You will continue to be our strength. God, your strength is more powerful than the death and injustice we experience. Evil's reign and its song over this world does not win. Right? The strength that we receive comes from a Christ who willingly died at the hands of, of injustice, under God's justice for us. So certainly, a part of the experience of experiencing strength will feel like death. <laughs> God, I'm at the end of my ropes. you got to help me. Well, you know where God gives us his strength? 
is at the end of Jesus' rope, right? Where Jesus dies, he goes under the vengeance of God for us so that in the strength of willingly submitting to the vengeance that we deserve, he then rises from the grave and begins an entire radical revolution of merciful grace that we don't deserve, that we then stand in so that as we experience justice and injustice and oppression and opposition to God's purposes, our king stands before us as, his, as we are bound to him in this nation of grace and say, God, He's got it. You've got him under control. He's got us under control. You've got this. I don't know how this all resolves, but Jesus, I'm just going to sing about who you are, about what you've done for us. This is the, this is the miracle, and this is the, the, this is the part that confuses us. And yet, amidst the evils of the world, Jesus prevails. It is through death's strength it is as though death's strength is finally broken. Evil's reign has been undermined, and the love of justice of love and justice of God have kissed at the cross. Jesus Himself, whom we sing about, we celebrate, He becomes our strength. So I pray that as we've kind of worked through this, I realize it's been kind of been all over the place. That we find strength in our steadfast God by grieving evil, but celebrating grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.